when we first hear the Dharma, we get some idea of its potential for us in our life. And however we first access the Dharma, whether it's in a class or a book or a retreat, short retreat, non-residential, whatever, it sets a, an idea in our mind that that's the way it's done. And the way that the Dharma has come to the West and people have gotten into the practice is primarily through intensive silent retreats like this. There are now more uh, classes and day-longs and uh, study courses than there were the first 25 or 30 years, but the idea, the format of doing intensive retreats like this has had a powerful conditioning effect on our understanding of what Dharma practice is. And that's not wrong. A lot of Dharma practice and the deepening of Dharma practice does require intensive, ongoing practice similar to this. But this is not meant to be a lifestyle that we live for the rest of our life. This is a period of intensive training. And so only monks or nuns or very dedicated lay practitioners would take on a period of time living this level of renunciation and intensive practice for even monks and nuns might only do three months, maybe a year. There's not many who really commit a life, commit to a lifestyle of intensive retreating. So what are we to do in between retreats? How are we to continue to pursue our Dharma aspirations and support the momentum of practice that we develop on retreats in our domestic, civil, social, political, economic obligations in life. So tonight I want to speak about one teaching of the Buddha called the Three Bases of Merit, more commonly known as the Three Pillars of the Dharma. And they are the three practices that establish a life in the Dharma, or establish a life in the truth meaning that one lives in alignment with the way things are in order to be happy. <clears throat> it's interesting that there are three practices because a tripod is one of the most stable of foundations. And in this teachings, it is said that these three trainings, three practices, are necessary to have a life that's stable in a commitment to realizing the truth. And the practices are dana, or the practice of generosity, sila, or the practice of morality, living in harmony, and bhavana, which is the practices of developing the mind. Now, initially you might think, generosity, uh, morality, these are two of the three foundations of establishing our life in the Dharma, when so much of our effort 
this week has been in the development of the mind, the bhavana part. But because we live in the world and mostly we're engaged in speaking and acting and, in, and relationships with one another, we need to bring that whole sphere of our life into as much care and as much awareness as we have been trying to develop here in this practice. So you can imagine in your daily life if you brought the continuity of attention and the carefulness with which you pay attention that you've developed here and you brought that into your relationships with one another. Even our familiar daily habits here, brushing your teeth, going to the toilet, eating, are brought into close introspection, close observation so that we can see what our thoughts are, what our feelings are, what our motivations are, and actually the same degree of attention, the same carefulness of attention is necessary in our relationships with one another. To bring them right up close so that we can see how are we acting, how are we speaking, how are we treating one another, because our happiness cannot be gained at the expense of another. We will carry them all with us into our practice. And if we think we're going to get a, uh, an advantage over someone, intentionally or more likely carelessly, well, you've seen the result. You come here, you quiet down, you close your eyes and you take a look, and the sources of pain and tension and unfinished business in relationships comes up for review. And if we have not been careful in our interaction with one another, we're going to be disturbed. The mind is going to be really uh, agitated by uh, what we see that we've done and what the uh, consequences on others has been. And so how we uh, relate to one another and how we treat one another is a significant player in how we develop the mind or how successful we are developing the mind. So I want to speak about these three foundations uh, of merit or these three pillars of the Dharma and try to point to some of the relationships between them because to the extent that we try to live in harmony with one another we'll be generous, we will be aware, we'll have to learn to let go of our preferences sometimes. To the extent that we practice generosity, it supports harmony. It also takes some development of the mind to practice generosity wisely. To the extent that we practice intensive development of mind here, calming the mind, uh, and developing the wisdom through insight, it inevitably is going to support living in greater harmony with one another, care and precision in our relationships, and being generous, expressing our gratitude for others in our life. So these three practices are not really separate. They mutually support one another. First is the practice of generosity. And it's interesting that generosity is such a major player in the development of liberating understanding because it is the easiest, the simplest, and the, in the initial way that we practice letting go. You don't really even have to have dharma aspirations or much dharma understanding to practice generosity, which is learning to let go. To let go of uh, our attachment to often things, 
personal possessions that we offer, and it can be books, money, clothes, time, whatever. But we also learn to be, to see how much we have to let go of our time, our knowledge, our, uh, the intangibles even, how generous we can be and how valuable that is in our relationships with one another. So this is a practice of renunciation or letting go. It takes awareness to practice mindfulness, to, to practice generosity skillfully. Mahasi Sayadaw in the uh, encouraging counsel that I shared with you at the beginning of the retreat, he says, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, for one's happiness, and one's humanity. Even a dog loves you if you give it a bone. How much more do humans love you, appreciate you, when you're generous? It's one of the obvious glue or, or vehicles of creating community. When we can detach or let go of something of value to us and offer it to another, of course there's no attachment. But we are happy to do it and happy to see the other receive it if we have genuinely let go. It purifies our heart. And when our heart is freed of attachment and aversion, we don't give to people that we're averse to, when the, when the mind, the heart, is free of attachment or aversion, naturally there is joy in the mind. When there's joy, there's delight, there's understanding that this is the way of happiness, the way of joy, how can we be proud, jealous, envious, angry? The mind is purified. It's the simplest way. Even when you think about or anticipate making a gift to someone, whether it's uh, sometimes we do birthday gifts and holiday gifts, and, but sometimes we just offer gifts. Just thinking about it, you can get excited like, oh goody, I'm, I, I'm, I'm excited about getting this thing or t having this thing, preparing it, wrapping it, using it for the last time, whatever it is. <laughs> <you know. laughs> getting it on sale, really good price, whatever, and, and offering it to another. Because if it makes us happy, it's likely to make the other person happy. So even in the planning or the anticipation, there's a kind of joy, happiness. And then in the actual offering of a gift, the Buddha, the Buddha suggested that we offer things face-to-face, hand-to-hand, because it deeply imprints on the mind the sound, the visuals, the texture, the, the, whole, the whole event of offering so that you can recall it. But in that, in that giving, you can see the anticipation of the other person, they can see yours, you can express your gratitude, you can offer the gift, you can see them receive it. It's a real, there's a lot of meaning, there's a lot of nuance in offering gifts face-to-face, hand-to-hand. There's a lot to recall, there's a lot to remember, there's a lot to Im that's imprinted on the mind to remember afterwards. And when you do, soon after or long after the gift, it again makes you happy. Think of, think of gifts that you've given, whether you've offered Donna before or you've offered some gift to a stranger or whatever, and you think of it, you go, yeah, glad I did that, glad I offered that. And the thing I've noticed, even though sometimes it's a stretch, you know, to offer something, after it's gone, I never miss it. It's like, 
Never miss it. Years ago, when I was living in uh, Western Massachusetts, before I ever went to Burma and ordained, I saw a newspaper article in the, about a potter that lived nearby who uh, had uh, around his studio and showroom had created beautiful gardens and he built a Japanese tea house and during the summer months had someone from Japan come to offer a tea ceremony. So I thought, well, that, that's interesting. I think I'll go. So I went and walked around the grounds. Beautiful park-like park garden and beautiful pottery, wonderful uh, stuff. And I went to the tea ceremony and in its simplicity and austerity, it's was striking. And I spent a couple hours just hanging out and soaking it up. The potter wasn't there at the time, so I couldn't express my appreciation and I couldn't afford anything that he had for sale. <laughs> so later, when he returned from his trip, uh, I wanted to express my gratitude to him, so I took him a loaf of bread. I used to make my own bread every week, six loaves, eight, five during a week, and I had one to, got, to, to offer. So I took him a loaf of bread and offered him bread and expressed my appreciation, and he was happy to receive it. Later, when he wanted to fire his kill, he only fired it four times a year. It's a wood-fired kill. It took a couple of days to fire it. He asked me if I would come help him. So he, would start, he started the fire, and he ran it for, kept the temperature rising for several hours. And when he wanted to go get some rest and sleep at night, he asked if I would keep the fire going, keep the temperature rising, and showed me how to do that. So through the night for five or six hours, seven, eight hours, I was keeping the fire going. Later he came out, finished off the firing, I went home. A couple days later when the kill cooled down, he invited me back to help him unload it and offered that I could pick any piece from the firing I wanted as a gift of appreciation for helping him with the firing. So we took them all out and laid them out and, you know, I looked around and there was a lot of beautiful things there, but I wasn't very knowledgeable. So I picked a bowl. It's a little bowl. It's a, a, a meal-sized bowl, small meal-sized meal bowl. And, I, and I, I picked it specifically because I wanted to use it on retreats. So he offered me the bowl and I was so happy and for many years I used it on retreat. Every time I'd go on retreat I'd take it with me, it was a nice looking bowl. I invested a lot of attachment in that bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciated it and I had a lot of joy using it. Some years later I went off to Burma and ordained, packing all my stuff in my truck, parking it in the garage at the meditation center, just left it there. Five years later, I returned in feeling a lot of gratitude for my teachers, Western and Asian. I looked through my stuff to find something to offer my teachers at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts because I didn't have anything, but I wanted to offer something out of my gratitude for them leading me on this Dharma path. I looked through my things, I found this bowl, and I said, this is the most valuable thing to me. So I offered it to one of my teachers who just um, had a new house built. So I offered it to her and uh, she received it and for, for many months I saw it on her mantelpiece in the living room, more like a showpiece rather than uh, a used bowl. And I lost track of it. I didn't go there for a while and lost track of it. Several years later, I was invited to meet with a Dharma benefactor in Boston for dinner and she wanted to talk about what I was doing with my Dharma teaching and just catch up. So I went there and we were having a meal in the garden out back and when it got cool at night or dusk we went inside and she was a, a yogi and she lived very simply uh, and in her living room, dining room, there was not, there was just Nothing. There was just a couple of plants and there was a little Buddha about an inch high on her mantelpiece and over in one corner was 
a little coffee table with a chair on one side and a two-person couch or seat on the other side. And she said, well, we can, we can sit at the chair around the coffee table. So I went over there and sat down, and she sat down on the other chair. And I looked on the table, there was that bowl. So I said, oh, that's a very nice bowl you have there. She said, uh, <laughs> she said, yes, one of my teachers gave it to me. And I said, do you know the history of that bowl? And she said, uh, <laughs> no. So I proceeded to tell her, and we both had a, a lot of joy that I had received it as a gift and enjoyed it. The, the potter had enjoyed giving it to me. I'd enjoyed using it, giving it to my teacher. She'd enjoyed receiving it and having it at her house. She evidently appreciated it in some way and offered it to her benefactor, who also appreciated it. Nothing is ever lost by giving it away. The value of the gift is insignificant in comparison to the amount of happiness received. And this is the way it is with all generosity. The happiness, you can't buy that happiness, but you can give something away and receive it. So generosity is not only a practice of letting go, it's a mindfulness practice, it's a practice of happiness. You want to be happy? As Manindra used to say, you want to be happy? Give things away. Because every time you remember it, you'll be happy again. And you can remember it many times over and be happy every time. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. If we knew what the Buddha knew, we wouldn't let any opportunity go by without sharing. What did he know? We can learn through our own practice of generosity, the value of giving. It is said that the donor receives benefit, the recipient also receives benefit, but the donor, the one who makes the offering, we think, oh, he's, he or she is giving something away. But as I said with the dog and the bone, those who are generous are, are, have a lot of uh, love from others, a lot of appreciation, a lot of affection from others. There was one monk in uh, the monastery where I stayed in Burma named Ujjatila. And he was a very energetic guy and he was really very, very popular, one of the teaching monks. And after I'd been there for a few years, he asked me if I would help him learn English and to come see him each evening for an hour, an hour and a half, and we would just talk. He knew some English, we'd just talk. So for, for months, I went to see him, uh, and we would just hang out and talk about whatever we could, whatever was, whatever was up. And it was nice getting to know him. Every time I went, before I left, he gave me something. Every time. A set of robes, an umbrella, a pair of slippers, some candy, a soda pop, a notebook, a pen, whatever. Every day, unfailingly. He's very generous like that. He used to have these jars of what is called jaggery. Jaggery is palm sugar. It's just pure sugar, which yogis can have after lunch if they're on eight precepts. <laughs> and he would offer it to everybody in the monastery. And you know, there's hundreds of people in the monastery, sometimes thousands. And there would be a steady stream at, in the evening, after dusk, when you can't eat, but you're kind of flagging and you need a little boost, it'd be a steady stream of yogis walking up on his porch, opening the door, coming in, unscrewing the cap, grabbing <laughs> And he was so loved in that monastery. He was just, it's not right to say he's the most popular, but he's very, uh, people had a lot of affection for him. <clears throat> also said that when one is generous, that you have a good reputation. People think well of you, generally. This is if you are sincerely generous, not generous out of expectation or generous out of 
uh, arrogant, you know, wanting recognition, but really genuinely uh, generous, that because such generosity is blameless, you know, it really ennobles your life. It really is a dignified way of being in the world with others. If, you know, and we all have the means. Let's not think that it's only Bill Gates that can, and Warren Buffett that can make appreciated gifts. Every one of us has lots to give. We have so, we live with so much abundance and there is so much need in the world. When we give, we have a good reputation. There's also said that those who are generous have a lot of self-confidence. They really are fearless, have no fear in their being with any group of people because they're generous. They can be generous to anyone, everyone. And it allows them to have that kind of unentangled relationship with others. Not sitting, not, not fearing their judgment or their condemnation or whatever. Everyone loves the donor. Everyone loves the generous person. Nicholas Kristof, the editor, the uh, op-ed, wrote an op-ed column in the New York Times a couple years ago, and he said that research at the National Institute of Health found that when we think of offering and being generous, that areas of the brain light up that are usually associated with selfish pleasures like eating and sex, implying that we are hardwired to be altruistic. And he concluded that while charity has a mixed record of helping others, it has an almost perfect record of helping ourselves. But why do we give? What is the motivation for offering anything to anyone? Sometimes it's clear. There's a need, we have something to fulfill that need, and we offer. But sometimes there's no limit to the need, and there's a limit to what we can offer. But still, out of compassion, out of care, out of concern, out of connection, we can offer even a little. As Mother Teresa said, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not a social worker trying to solve the problem of homeless people dying on the street. I just want to care for this one person. So too, we don't have to solve the problem of homeless people on the street. But as I discovered with my own practice of being uncomfortable with my own fear and anxiety and resentment and judgment about panhandlers and homeless people on the street when I confronted my own suffering and started to connect with homeless people, panhandlers. I couldn't fix them. I couldn't solve their problems. I, I didn't even know what all the problems were. But the problem in front of me when I walk down the street is here's a human being that, well, will appreciate contact. And so just the connecting with them as a human being. How are you? How's it going today? What do you need? Here's something to help. And by the way, it's very entertaining. I get some really interesting conversations. One of the last times I was in Portland, pouring rain, running down the street to, to get to the breakfast at the restaurant, there's a homeless person standing there in the pouring rain. So I said to him, how's it going today? He says, it's a little slow today. <laughs> What's that mean? I don't know what it means. I offered him something, but they all appreciate the contact. You know, sure, they appreciate the dollar, the two dollars or whatever. But I think more than that, they appreciate the humanity, the human touch, the recognition that here's somebody that sees them, somebody that's not afraid of them, somebody that's not judging them, somebody that's not shooing them off the street, somebody that's not, somebody that just cares. And really what we offer in the offering of any gift is the gift of love. We care. And that's how we express it. And that's what 
those who receive gifts understand or feel. The Buddha said, a wise person gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, and gives it with the understanding that something good will come of it. As I mentioned, we have more than enough. One of our students down in the Bay Area a few years ago, well, several years ago now, started a, a nonprofit to ask the question of corporations and to take this question into corporate boardrooms and uh, CEOs' offices. What is enough? In your company, what is enough? In your life, what is enough? And that's her job. That's, that's what she does. And when she came on retreat and shared this with us, you know, and since then I have reflected on, of course, the lifestyle that we lead, you know, that we lead generally, collectively, but also the lifestyle I live individually and how might I live more lightly on the earth. You know the second precept that says not to take what is not offered? Well, we aren't, I mean, I don't think there's anyone in the room that's a, a thief, you know, a real, you know, real conscious, intentional stealer, maybe, or hopefully not too much. Uh, but that's not the only understanding of that precept. In our own life, how can we hear this teaching on and the, the, the renunciation of taking, not taking what is not offered? Well, remember earlier in the retreat I mentioned the Buddha's statement about why he goes to the forest to practice for two reasons. One is a pleasant abiding for himself here and now. And the second reason he resorts to the forest is out of compassion for future generations. Now, when I think about future generations, having to live on the earth that I, with my lifestyle, leave them, I feel there's something more I could do. In a way, I see that overuse of the earth's resources is taking what has not yet been offered by those future generations. It's a way of bringing the, you know, the environmental uh, issues of our day as they will affect others in the future and bring it into the present. It's only through unwillingness to consider, you know, extending uh, our life in all directions into the past, into the future that we can live so carelessly. And so for me, uh, how I use the Earth's resources is a real, it's a precept. It's, a, it's my commitment to the second precept of not taking what is not offered. And admittedly, a lot of the way that our society, our civilization is going, we, we can't stop but we can look and see where it's excessive and ask ourselves, what is enough for us? And it is empowering to bring your life into that kind of awareness, to bring it into awareness and to, to do what you can out of concern, respect, compassion for future generations. Wisaka was the Buddha's chief uh, patroness, the woman who most supported the Buddha and his monks and nuns at that time. And she said, when I remember, because the Buddha asked her, why, 
why are you so generous? Why, what, what's the motivation or what's the result of being so generous? And she said, when I remember my acts of generosity, I'm glad. When I'm glad, I'm happy. When, I, when my mind is happy, my body is calm. When my body is calm, I feel pleasant. When I feel pleasure, my mind becomes concentrated or still, stable. And that brings about the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of enlightenment. Wow, such an, such an obvious linkage between practicing generosity and the development of the factors of enlightenment. It said that in the practice of generosity that there's levels of purity, the purity of the giver, the purity of the gift, the purity of the receiver. And for the giver, it's if we can purify our minds of non-attachment, or of attachment, having non-attachment, purify the mind of aversion, purify the mind of delusion, then with the clarity of the mind and the understanding of what we're doing, the gift, the giving of it, is pure. The gift, of course, should be legal, <laughs> appropriate, <laughs> You know, uh, kind of just and useful. You know, I mean, if you give something that's not useful, well, you're not going to feel very good about it. If you give something that's of minimal value, you're not going to be very excited about that. It's not going to bring you much joy. You're not going to have much intention to do it. And when you think about it, you might have regret. So, the gift has some conditioning effect on how you'll feel about that act of generosity. So it's important to choose a, uh, a, an appropriate gift for the recipient. And if the recipient has purity of mind in the receiving of it, not greedy or covetous or uh, feeling proud, then they can use that gift in a way that is beneficial to them and to others as much as needed. So, we should look for the opportunity to uh, offer gifts out of purity of our heart, an appropriate gift to a recipient that can uh, use it. Because I must say, you know, sometimes after giving a gift to panhandlers, a street person, you know, I reflect a little bit on, I, I really don't know what they're going to do with that, you know, and they could, well, hurt themselves more. Um, you know, that's, that's their choice, but, you know, I, I give for the connection, for the, for the acknowledgement, but still there's a, there's a thought in the back of the mind that, you know, it may not be uh, the best of giving. The Buddha said, the gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. And why should that be? The Dharma is a gift that we have been offered by generations of monks and nuns that have carried the teachings from the time of the Buddha down to us. And to the extent that we hear it and we practice and we understand, we begin to disentangle our mind, our heart, suffering and the causes of suffering. What greater gift could you be given? The end of suffering. You know, food's nice, clothes nice, you know, whatever. You know, winning the lottery is nice, but you know what? You still have suffering. But to be offered the gift, the path to the end of suffering. It's said that it's beneficial when you hear it, when you practice it, and not only for this lifetime. Now, I'm not asking you to believe in multiple lives or sequential lives, but to the extent that you do, then this stream of consciousness that goes from here to there, as free as it is here, it'll be that free there. And so, hearing the Dharma and practicing the Dharma in this lifetime, the benefit isn't only in this lifetime. It goes with you. And so a gift in this lifetime of the Dharma lasts for as long as you wander in samsara. 
That's why the Buddha said, or Mahasi Sayadaw said, it is generosity that you can rely on for wealth, happiness, and humanity. Well, I took a little longer on that than I thought, but it's not an insignificant practice in the development of the mind and um, disentangling the heart-mind from attachment and learning how to let go. The second of the foundations of uh, mindfulness is sila, or living in harmony, which we have done here by taking the precepts. We've undertaken the five precepts as a way of guarding our speech and behavior, purifying our mind of basically acting out in relationship to others in a way that causes harm, and heightening our sensitivity to being careless even in how we speak, how we act, so that we're not harming any other, any of us, but also any being with killing, stealing, uh, sexual (coughs) improprieties, um, speaking carefully and, and not using intoxicants that cloud the mind. All of these precepts, of course, are based on a heart of loving-kindness and compassion. We do this out of love and compassion for others. Now, when you think about the precepts, and you think about our relations with each other in the world outside of retreat, the most ubiquitous place of interaction with one another is speaking. Speaking is a practice unto its own. And if we bring, if we care to make speaking a mindfulness practice, you'll have plenty of opportunity. Every time you think about speaking, then you have to start practicing awareness and uh, compassion or loving kindness. The Buddha was um, very explicit in his teachings on what I call, or he calls, right speech. We've taken the precept here to refrain from speaking falsely, you know, telling the truth. But there's more guidelines from the Buddha's teaching. And I want to mention them because we talk a lot. We speak a lot. We suffer a lot from what is said carelessly or intentionally that causes us harm, causes others harm. So the Buddha identified five conditions for harmless speech. And the first is to speak with a loving heart, a friendly heart. To speak in a way that supports uh, connection with one another. That doesn't You know, it's not demanding, it's not abrasive, it's not angry, but it's coming from a loving place. Even if what you have to say is difficult for the other person to hear, you can still have love in your heart or compassion in your heart for them as you say it. So to speak with a a loving heart. It affirms our connection with one another. It is out of care and consideration for that connection with another. And it supports being in harmony with one another. The opposite of loving speech is called pisuna wada. Pisuna pisuna is a fiend or demon and it is speech which leads to division. It's speech which um, separates others or separates itself. It's it's mean-spirited, it can be backbiting, it can be gossip, it can be malicious or slanderous, but its, its purpose is to make people's relationships difficult, or tension, or to break people apart. And it's not like we might have the intention to do that, but out of carelessness, our speech can do that. We can gossip about, you know, two people get together and talk about a third person who's not there. You know what that's like? We often can say things about them that we can't say to them. 
So ask yourself next time you're talking to somebody, to someone about someone who's not there. Could you say to that person what you're saying about them? And if you couldn't, check out why. That's, that's a hard practice. Second uh, condition for harmless speech is to speak gently, to speak in a way that the words can be received, to not speak harsh. But for that, you know, to watch the volume, the tone of voice, the posture, the eye contact, there's a lot of corollary practices with speaking gently so that uh, we can... Uh, that our message can be received and can be heard uh, appropriately. So the, the opposite of gentle speech is furusawada, crude, harsh, unkind, rough, fierce. Um, and it's speech that we use or is used to belittle, to taunt, to shame, to torment others. When you leave here, you'll have a chance to read all about it in the news. Because political news is not gentle, it's not kind, it's not polite. You know, it's just not nice to talk like that. And yet, this is the conditioning that we receive from our culture, that it's okay. And so we pick up on, you know, the ranting and the harsh speech of politicians and shock jocks and all kinds of commentators. And it gives us permission to speak like that, but it doesn't stop the pain of those who hear it. So now we have to confront our cultural conditioning and decide for ourselves whether this is a practice that we want to take on, knowing that we'll be going against the flow or the grain of our society, of our culture. In Burma, when I was in the monastery, there were a group of young monks. They were about my age, a little younger, that Saito Upandita had invited to come to study and practice with him in Rangoon. And these monks were all brilliant. They were number one or two in the national exams in the country. They had fantastic practice. They were people who would come and practice for, for a month or a month and a half and finish the course. They were just extraordinary. And they were there to learn English to be the monks that he would send to other countries when there was a center that wanted a Burmese monk to come and teach. Well, to jump ahead 20 years, they're all spread around the United States and in England and Asia, in all of the big cities. That's where they all are. I, I thought about having a reunion of them all just to kind of get together, but don't know how to arrange it. But anyway, they lived as a community in one section of the monastery. And occasionally I'd have a need to go there, an opportunity to go there to learn how to do my robes or ask them about something. And they were very curious about me because they wanted to practice English with me. And I was kind of curious about them because they were pretty, pretty noble, pretty distinctive. And I knew about them. So I'd hang out with them for a while and, and talk. I could not get them to talk about themselves or each other at all. It's like they wouldn't do it. They, wouldn't, they didn't have anything bad to say, no gossip about one another, nothing. And even though I knew, oh, he was number one in the country when he did his exams. Oh, he finished his meditation in six weeks. He did, it's like, you know, they don't claim it. They don't talk about it. They don't. And I reflected on that, what that how that supported their community. Now you think about it. The fabric of their community that holds them together and allows them to live together in harmony to do the work that they're doing is as fragile as the most careless one. Because all it takes is one person in that community 
talking stink to others about somebody else and kind of giving stink eye and kind of, you know, kind of bad mouthing or criticizing, you know, and the whole community, community unravels. The security, the harmony, the safety, the cohesion, out of carelessness. We live in such a community. Whether it's our family, our workplace, our spiritual group, our sitting group, our whatever. We are not immune from the same pressure on the fabric of our connection. And if we're not careful, out of carelessness, we threaten our ability to live in harmony. Speaking with a loving heart, speaking gently, and the third condition for harmless speech is speaking the truth. Do you speak the truth? Have you made a commitment in your life to always speak the truth? If you haven't, are you a liar? <laughs> there's a commitment to always speak the truth, or there's what? Speak the truth when it's convenient? The Dharma is the truth. We're on a path of realizing the Dharma. We're on a path of trying to understand the way things are truly and to live in alignment with it. Without a commitment to speak the truth, how do we think we're going to find the truth? It's hard. I know it's hard. We have, we have a lot of permission in our society and in our relationships to not tell the truth. Because, frankly, I don't want to know. I don't really want to know how you're feeling or whatever. You know, and so it's really hard to, to have that as a commitment and a practice within ourself. In the, in the monastic uh, community, speaking falsely about one's spiritual attainments is so severe a wrong speech that if you do that, you're automatically disrobed and you cannot confess, do penance, do probation, and you cannot reordain in this lifetime. It is that severe. Everything, almost everything, there's only four rules like that. Everything else you can do a confession and penance, probation, and you can stay a monk. But if you misrepresent your spiritual attainment, claiming uh, concentrated or insightful states that you have not attained, disrobe. That's it. Why would that be so severe? Why would that be so vital? Why is that so such a rule? It said it's because to misrepresent one's attainment undermines the faith of students and followers or others practicing the Dharma. And that is dangerous because you not only undermine their faith, you stop them from practicing, you put doubt in their mind, which lasts not only this lifetime, but possibly a long time. And that's, that's really being unkind to those who are seeking the Dharma, seeking to live in alignment with the Dharma. You remember the, the I guess it's a, I don't know if it's a bedtime story, but it's certainly a children's, children's story about the little boy who cried wolf. You know, the, the village has got sheep, and they pick one little boy to go out in the, on the hillside and watch the sheep so that nothing happens to him during the day. So the boy's out there, and he's watching the sheep, and he gets bored, and he says, ah, I think I'll play a trick on people. 
So he goes, wolf, wolf, He's, he cries wolf, wolf, you know, like, oh, there's a wolf getting the sheep. So village people come running out and like, where, where, where? You know, and he said, ha, 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 fooled you, there's no wolf. And they was like, oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't say that if it's not happening. So they went back. Another day comes along and he's equally bored and equally not careful. And he says, I'll do it again. He liked seeing people get all excited. So he, wolf, wolf. People come running out and trying to scare the wolf away. <laughs> no wolf, I, I fooled you again. You know? and he said, <laughs> bad boy. Said, Don't do that again. So the third time he decides to play this trick on him. He goes, wolf, wolf. And everybody in the village says, hey, don't believe him. He's just lying. There's no wolf. But this time there really was. And the wolf carried off the sheep. We live in a society just like that. A lot of people crying wolf. And we don't listen. We don't believe them. Because they're not representing the truth. And in the process, they carry off, or they allow to be carried off, our common wealth. You look around. Because we have been trained by politicians and Wall Streeters and others, we don't believe them, period. <laughs> we expect deception. We expect not truth, right? I mean, if you don't, you're being naive. And, and so we've been trained to accept that while they go about plundering our common wealth. We don't have to get political about it, but it's pretty obvious. Why? Because we as a society do not value the truth. We mouth it, yeah, we appreciate the truth, but we don't practice it collectively. It has consequences all of us. Now we have permission to be deceptive. Expect it. To be cynical. So, the fourth condition for harmless speech is if you can speak the truth with a loving heart in gentle words, it should be beneficial. If it's not beneficial, why bother? But so much of our speech, as you know, is chit-chat, superficial, meaningless, gossip, no purpose whatsoever, no value whatsoever. The name for that kind of speech is Sampapalapawada. It sounds like useless, frivolous, you know, it means nothing. And yet, so much of what we hear and often what we say is just that, useless, has no value, no purpose. Why should we care that we speak useless? when we want to say something of value, <clears throat> who is going to believe us? Who is going to distinguish between they're just bullshitting or they really have got something to say that's important if we've been trained to accept anything? It's hard to know, isn't it? Entertainment has become the news. The news has become entertainment. Do you know the difference? It's often hard to tell. The Buddha, in his list making, had um, drew up a list of the topics that it was unedifying for monks and nuns to speak about. Now, monks and nuns—they've devoted their whole life. You know, they're they're on the you know as as much of a path to get to the end of suffering as they can. So the Buddha had a lot, of, a lot of rules for him. And the rules for speaking included the list of topics that they should avoid because it was unedifying and it didn't lead to the end of suffering. It's an interesting list for us to contemplate. Politicians, criminals, 
armies in war, danger, food, drink, clothes, beds, cosmetics and jewelry, relatives, the opposite gender, heroes, the deceased, villages, towns, cities, count, countries, gossip, philosophical speculation on being and non-being, random and desultory chat without any definite plan, regularity or purpose, and it's not committed to anything. Well, there goes TV in the newspapers. What else is there to talk about? Well, he had a list of those topics too, you know, in his thoroughness. He said the topics that would be uplifting for monks and nuns, now we're not monks and nuns, so this doesn't apply to us, but we can still read it to get some ideas. The uplifting topics for monks and nuns are talking about wanting little, contentment, seclusion, aloofness from contact, strenuousness, virtue, concentration, understanding, deliverance, knowledge and vision of deliverance and freedom, peace. Wow. Essentially, the Dharma. To make this a practice, the next time you invite some friends out for dinner, <laughs> uh, just see how it goes when you introduce the topic of contentment, seclusion. <laughs> I mean, actually, in the, in, the, in the periods of times when I have been practicing with friends at home, and we do have Dharma discussions, it's very supportive. It's so, it's wonderful to talk to Dharma companions about practice. It's so supportive. But it would have to be a practice, something you really took on with a intention, because it's not likely to happen accidentally. <laughs> the fifth condition for harmless speech, and maybe the most difficult, is to speak what is truthful, beneficial, with a loving heart, in a gentle way, at the right time. When is the right time? Well, that's going to take a lot of awareness on your part to know when the other person can hear what it is you have to say. And that time may never come. Can you accept that the urgency with which you have to say something to somebody may never be an appropriate time? It's, it's something to consider, you know. Because at the inappropriate time, who can hear it? You know, you go to a cocktail party, somebody asks you about your retreat, don't say anything. Cocktail party is not the time to be talking about the Dharma. Why? It's throwing pearls before swine. <laughs> not that those who drink are the swine, but we're not going to hear the Dharma. The Dharma is subtle. It's deep. It's profound. It's life-transforming. Cocktail parties is not the appropriate location. You can see that if we took these teachings on harmless speech into our life, into our work, into our domestic situation, and practice even some of them just some of the time, it would be noticeable. It would have a profound effect on our mind and those to whom and with whom we're speaking. It's an awareness practice. It takes a tremendous amount of letting go of habit, obsession. But to the extent that we can speak with awareness and carefully, it's a source of happiness to us and the, those who hear what we have to say. These are some of the ways that we can practice outside of retreat. Generosity, uh, living in harmony, particularly around speech. There's many, many more. I've run out of time tonight, but just so you know that there's lots to do for practice, for really training the mind and 
developing the heart that's committed to the Dharma without sitting in the dark with your eyes closed. There's lots to do in our human interactions with one another to develop awareness and to practice letting go. Look around. There's lots of information on how to do all these practices. And there's lots of encouragement if you, if you stay in touch with Dharma, Dharma folks. Uh, so I encourage you to live a life within the Dharma, to practice generosity, to live in harmony as best you can, and to develop the mind. It's the source of genuine happiness. So let's let the words quiet down, sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.